Thank you very much, Rachel. Uh, may the Lord bless the reading of his word. It's a wonderful passage, isn't it? Uh, so much rich truth in there, and I'm excited to get into it. I actually just want to make two very simple points this morning, and the first relates to those questions I asked at the beginning, uh, just before the reading. And the first point I want to make is this. There are some questions that only God can answer, and our response should be then to look to his wisdom. There are some questions that only God can answer, so look to his wisdom. That's point number one. The second point actually flows out of that, uh, because when we look to God's wisdom, and when we come to understand the way the world really is in relation to God, we realize, point two, that there is only one kingdom that will stand, and our response should be to make sure that we're part of it. So those are the points. There are some questions that only God can answer, so look to his wisdom. There is only one kingdom that will stand, so make sure you're part of it. Let's consider point one. Now, at this point in Daniel, uh, we find ourselves in the second year of the reign of this great and terrifying king, Nebuchadnezzar. He was, if you like, the Vladimir Putin of his day. He was powerful, he was wealthy, he was ruthless. Uh, But we read in our passage, Rachel's read in our passage, that all wasn't well for this powerful king. He was having dreams, uh, dreams which left him troubled and sleepless. Uh, And he wasn't used to feeling that way. Normally he was in control of everything in his realm. He feared nothing and he feared no one. But now he finds himself in this strange position because suddenly he's powerless, potentially even scared, in the face of a dream that he simply cannot understand. And so he does what every powerful leader seems to do when they're trying to work through a tricky situation. Uh, He calls a sort of emergency council meeting, kind of like Cobra, I guess, uh, in the UK, bringing in some of the greatest minds in the kingdom to try and address this problem. I was thinking maybe it's a bit like Boris Johnson calling uh, Professor Chris Whitty or Sir Patrick Valance uh, into his office at the beginning of COVID. These are the brains, the boffins, the guys who can crunch the data, try and figure out what's going on. Uh, And we read in verse 2, glance down at it with me, uh, in verse 2, then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, The sorcerers, the Chaldeans, be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And this is his think tank. Uh, These guys all troop in before him, and he outlines to them the predicament that he's in, the dream he can't understand, the interpretation he requires of them. But to the great horror of this highly esteemed think tank, there's a catch. And the catch is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to provide them with no data whatsoever. Uh, Chris Whitty would have had an absolute meltdown at this point. Uh, He won't tell them anything about the dream itself. He says in verse 5, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you should be torn limb from limb and your houses laid in ruins. I I imagine Boris Johnson didn't quite say that. Uh, A calm and measured response from Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? And I'm sure the advisors were stunned. I'm sure their blood ran cold. They'd always been able to go away and cobble together some sort of answer for the king and come back and and satisfy him one way or another. But this is altogether different. This time, uh, the king is asking them to reveal an objective truth that's effectively locked in his mind. And failure to do so would result in horrible death. And so the king had them, in effect, in a cruel kind of headlock. Uh, They urged urged him once again, give us the data we need, reveal the dream itself, but but he wouldn't budge. And so finally they concede, if you look down at verse 11, uh, they concede with these words, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. 
The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. This is a really key moment in our passage because Nebuchadnezzar's think tank have come to see the limits of their own minds. They couldn't meet the king's demand. Only the gods could, they say. And for them, the gods were distant, detached, and silent. And there are often times when human wisdom seems to reach its limits, aren't there? I think one of the most striking things about the pandemic that we've experienced or are experiencing is is the way that in many ways it did actually beat us. We couldn't continue our normal lives, could we? We were sheltered in our homes. We were forced to cancel almost every major event in our lives. The economy was shut down. We didn't have a quick and easy solution to the problem we faced. For once, modern medicine didn't seem to have all the answers, did it? Yes, there are now vaccines, and that is remarkable, and we're very thankful for them. But for a time, we felt our vulnerability. Society didn't have the answers in the face of a pandemic, and most poignantly, in the face of death. And it still doesn't. Scientists can give us all the data. We can know precisely how many people have died of COVID each and every day. We can examine the trends. We know better than ever how viruses spread and mutate. We're great at understanding those questions. But what does our society say in the face of death itself? What is our response to the beast that terrifies us the most? It says things like, let's erect a memorial. Let's hold a public inquiry. Let's celebrate those who've died, but not much more. Humanists UK have a video on their website entitled, What Should We Think About Death? And they say in the video, death is a natural part of life. It makes sense for us to try not to be afraid of this but instead to come to terms with it. Well, Humanists UK, if death is so natural, then why are we scared of it at all? But try not to be afraid, they say. It's bleak, isn't it? It's hopeless. And people think like this because we live in a society that has rejected the idea of divine revelation. A society assumes, as John Lennox puts it, a closed system of cause and effect undisturbed by the supernatural. And as Christians, I think we're guilty of buying into that mentality at times. How often do we trust our own wisdom rather than God's? How often do we try and solve or explain uh, problems with our own strength and reasoning? Without even praying, I'm guilty of that often. How often do we make choices and decisions motivated purely by human logic rather than God's word? that fail to recognize this world isn't a closed system, that there is a God in heaven who reveals truth, that God does have a grand plan for this universe and for our lives. I find that when the pressure is on, when I feel overwhelmed, I very quickly act like an unbeliever. I'm more prone to to fear than faith. I'm more prone to panic than I am to prayer. Maybe you can relate to that. And if anyone should have felt overwhelmed in this situation, it should have been Daniel, surely. There's an order out for his execution, and he doesn't even know why. But he models a right, godly response to his situation, a godly response to crisis. This decree had gone out for all the wise men to be killed, Daniel and his friends included. Uh, Look down at verse 14 at his response. It's described as prudent. He asked for details of the situation, And he makes clear that he will show the interpretation to the king. 
And then he goes and organizes a prayer meeting with his believing friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he tells them in verse 18 to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so they may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I think his calm steps are are so wonderful to look at because they're the steps of a man who is convinced that there is a God in heaven who communicates with human beings, a man who knows that this world isn't a closed system. And Daniel does what what I should do, what, what you guys should do when we feel overwhelmed. He calls some godly friends, he explains the situation, he asks them to pray, and together they appeal to their merciful God for aid and for intervention. And God responds, God reveals to him the truth in a vision of the night, Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. And we see Daniel's response in verse 20. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I love this because Daniel's delighting in the reality of the fact that behind this universe stands a sovereign God who is above all and over all. And that causes him to rejoice in the face of a bleak, bleak situation. And so now now with boldness, he asks to see the king. Can I have an audience with the king? Uh, And he comes into the throne room before the most powerful man in the world. This is a guy who quite literally could say the word and your head would be cleaved from your shoulders. Uh, It's thought Nebuchadnezzar maybe even had live lions chained up besides his throne. Must have been a terrifying experience. But look at the way Daniel speaks. The king asks him if he can make this dream known and and its interpretation. And Daniel replies with what is probably the most fundamental statement in our chapter today. Verse 27, look down at it. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But, But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. This changes everything for Daniel. This changes everything for us. He refuses, Daniel refuses to take any credit for the interpretation he's about to give. He wants to be crystal clear that no human source could reveal this truth. Only God in heaven. He is the one who reveals mysteries. He knows the future. He can reveal things that science and philosophy cannot reveal. And for you and I to truly understand our place in the universe, our place in this world, we need, to be, we need to be convinced that this is reality, that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. There is a God who sits on the throne of this universe. We need to be convinced that scientists and politicians and doctors and philosophers and financial advisors, lawyers, you fill in the gap cannot by human reasoning or logic alone give us the meaning and purpose and understanding and hope that deep down we all crave. We need a God of revelation. We need a God who shatters the closed system that we humans construct for ourselves and reveals his truth to us from the outside in. Truth we cannot know without his intervention. We need the God who reveals mysteries. And as I thought about this, I I thought about Paul's words in Colossians 2. And verse 2, and he writes of 
of Christians. He says this, my goal is they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I thought, well, God's greatest revelation is given to us in Jesus Christ, isn't it? The word who became flesh, God incarnate, God in a body. The one who said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this morning, if you want to know the full picture, if you want to see clearly in a world that is massively confusing at times, you and I need to accept that there are some questions, the deepest questions in life, like those I outlined at the beginning, that only God can answer. And to truly understand this world and your place in it, you must look to his wisdom, which is ultimately found in Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so now we reach the dream and its interpretation. Daniel's standing in the throne room, and at this point I want to make uh, the second point uh, of the morning, and, and it's this. There is only one kingdom that will stand, so make sure you're part of it. There's only one kingdom that will stand, so make sure you're part of it. In verse 31, Daniel begins to describe in vivid detail Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In his dream, he'd seen a great image, mighty and of exceeding brightness. Its appearance was frightening. The head was fine gold, the chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Then this stone, not cut by human hands, strikes the image on the feet. And the whole image begins to shatter into tiny little pieces, becoming like chaff, carried away in the wind without trace. It kind of reminded me of the Marvel movies, you know, when Thanos clicks his fingers and they just dissipate into dust. It's kind of like that, isn't it? This mighty and terrifying statue vanishes and dissipates into nothingness. And the stone, meanwhile, seemingly small at first, it grows bigger and bigger and becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar, listening to this young man explain his dream, was absolutely stunned. This was exactly what he dreamed. He couldn't believe that Daniel is describing it. And then Daniel gives the interpretation. Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. He had the power, the might, the glory. He ruled over animals and birds and humans. Yet Daniel says all his authority was subject to God. The chest and arms of silver, they were a second inferior kingdom that would come after Nebuchadnezzar's. The middle and thighs of bronze, a third. The legs and iron and feet of iron and clay, a fourth. A divided kingdom that wouldn't hold together. The stone that became a great mountain, meanwhile, Daniel says, was a kingdom set up by the God of heaven. A kingdom that would never be destroyed. That shall never be overthrown by any other ruler. A kingdom that will stand when all other kingdoms fall. It's a kingdom of small beginnings, but a kingdom that will expand to fill the whole earth. And it's interesting because apart from indicating that the the gold head represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom and the stone represents God's kingdom, Daniel doesn't say specifically what the other kingdoms are. It may be the chest and arms represent the coming Medo-Persian empire. Um, It may be that the belly and thighs of the Greek empire, the legs of feet and of, and of iron and clay, the Roman Empire. But there's some debate around the precise kingdoms listed. The key point is this, however. The kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdoms of men. 
no matter what form they take. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the kingdoms of man comprised a single statue united in opposition to the Lord, and they're impressive. They look impressive. As so many human kingdoms do, they achieve remarkable things. I, uh, I was trying to think through a list of, of different remarkable things we've achieved as humans, and you know, constructually, in terms of construction, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the pyramids, the statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, the Channel Tunnel, I thought it was pretty cool, um, the Panama Canal, the systems of law and justice, the medical advancements, the scientific endeavor, the fact that we have iPhones in our pockets. You know, it's like crazy some of the things we've achieved as human beings. But we're proud, aren't we? We're, we're so proud, we, we, the success goes to our heads and we put so much confidence in ourselves. We think we're autonomous. We've think, we think we've achieved greatness independent of God. We fail to give him the honor he's due, the glory he deserves, the recognition for enabling us to have the minds and the capacity to advance as we have done. We live like the world is a closed system. And here through Daniel, God makes very clear to Nebuchadnezzar that any kingdom set up outside of his divine kingdom will not stand. Ancient Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, classical Greece, the Roman Empire, the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, the British Empire, the list goes on. You can name hundreds of kingdoms that have crumbled and have been carried away by the wind. And when we look at the world today, we see Western powers who seem quite impressive, quite strong. The UK, the EU, the United States. But so many of them stand in opposition to God, denying God's revealed truth, promoting things like abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, blurring gender distinctiveness. When we, when we look east, we see Bashar al-Assad in Syria. We see the Taliban in Afghanistan regaining control. Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Conflict in Myanmar. Again, the list goes on. And it can seem overwhelming at times, even just watching the news. But God reassures us in Daniel that these kingdoms will not stand. 600 years after Daniel spoke these words, there was a seemingly insignificant event in a little Middle Eastern town. It was a little backwater in the Roman Empire. And a child was born to a teenage mother, a child of whom Isaiah wrote, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Here was the dawn of God's kingdom. Here was the birth of Jesus Christ, God's anointed king. His kingdom, that little stone that, that hit the feet of the statue that became a great mountain that filled the earth. And his method, one that was strikingly different from every kingdom that had come before, one that subverted the methods used by the kingdoms that had come before. He didn't come with military might. He didn't seek to dominate and subjugate, to bludgeon his enemies into submission. He came as a servant king, a king whose ultimate act of service was to die on a cross in your place and my place for my sin and, and yours. Tim Keller puts it like this, on the cross, Jesus reversed the power dynamics of the world, giving up power in service rather than exploiting. 
and took the just penalty for our unjust rejection of God and treatment of others. This is Jesus. We crave good leadership, don't we? We often bemoan the fact that our leaders seem so uh, incompetent and incapable at times. We long for it, we hope for it, we despair at the lack of it. But if you're a Christian this morning, I think this passage encourages us to take heart. Don't despair, because Jesus Christ is the leader our hearts desire, and our loyalty is to his ever-expanding kingdom. That's where you're a citizen if you're a Christian this morning. As Isaiah wrote, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will bring justice. He will ultimately bring peace to our troubled world. So the call is to, to work hard for his kingdom in the knowledge that one day all human kingdoms will blow away like chaff in the wind. And practically speaking, this means don't moan and groan about how bad things are. I'm guilty of that. We shouldn't do that. We should focus on our mission. We should share the gospel in the sphere God has placed us in. We should be salt and light. We should do the work that we're called to do in such a way that people ask, what's your motivation? Why do you do that? Have a positive spirit, a quiet confidence, because you know your citizenship is in heaven. Hebrews 12 puts it like this, let us run the race Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or or faint-hearted. In our troubled world, it's easy to grow weary and faint-hearted, isn't it? Maybe you're not a Christian today, and if that's you, if Jesus isn't your king, can I urge you to turn to him? In light of God's revealed truth, Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, but he paid homage to Daniel when he should have paid homage to God. However, he also said this, he said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And when he said that, he hit the nail on the head. If you want to truly understand the world, the universe, and your place in it, you must acknowledge the Lord as the revealer of truth. Without that, you'll spend your life stumbling around in the darkness, trying to grasp hold of meaning, but never quite getting hold of it. Our society does that. It trusts in democracy, in capitalism, in socialism, the individual, in spirituality. And ultimately, that leads to despair and disillusionment, cynicism and disappointment. And ultimately, it's destructive. It leads to destruction. The Lord Jesus Christ gave up his life so that you and I could become citizens of an unshakable kingdom, a kingdom characterized by thanksgiving, by righteousness, and by joy. And look, we don't deserve that kind of citizenship. I certainly don't. But as the Apostle Paul puts it, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. There's only one kingdom that will stand when all others fall. So make sure you're a part of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you are the God in heaven who reveals mysteries. 
Father, we give thanks that this world is not a closed system of cause and effect. We give thanks that there is answers to the deepest questions of our hearts. But questions like, are we worth something? Uh, questions like, what happens when we die? Questions about whether or not we can be forgiven for those things that we yeah, are deeply ashamed of. Father, thank you that you don't leave us stumbling around in the darkness, grappling with these things. Ultimately, Lord, you've sent your son, the, the ultimate revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And Father, in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Heavenly Father, thank you your kingdom will stand when all others fall. Thank you that Christ rules with justice and righteousness and one day will right every wrong. And so, Father, this morning, maybe we do feel weary. Maybe we do feel faint-hearted. Lord, help us to take heart that despite all the oppressive, uh, wicked kingdoms on earth uh, which set their face against you, help us to take heart because that little stone grew into a great mountain which covered the whole earth. Lord, let us run with endurance the race set before us, working hard for Christ's kingdom and keeping our eyes fixed on him until that day when faith turns to sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.